You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. Going into college, Grace was pre-med and planning on becoming a doctor. Through taking classes and trying internships, she found out this wasn't the right path for her. Instead, her twisted journey led her to therapy. Although this wasn't the plan going into college, Grace shares that looking back now, she really appreciates the unclear route that she took. She mentions, what's the fun in having an obvious and predictable plan? But I get it, no one wants to feel lost either. Now, as a therapist, Grace supports her clients as they navigate their own ups and downs of life. She's transitioned from a solo therapist to building her own practice, Grace Therapy and Wellness. And if you're a Texas resident, I highly encourage you to check her out. By listening to this episode, you'll learn how to use value cards to uncover what's important to you, how to listen to your nervous system, and what happens when you ask better questions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the licensed clinical social worker, plant lover, and badass woman of Austin, Grace Dowd. Well, Grace, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. This is actually my first live or in-person interview that I've had outside of Gabby, which was, I think, episode 13, but that felt really easy and natural. You and I have talked twice now. I think we met at a mutual friends party a year ago, and we just hit it off. I loved that conversation that we had at that party. And then I saw you again two months ago at Gabby's gallery show, her Badass Women of Austin, which of course you were a part of because you are a badass. And I was really excited. We got into our conversation, I think like two or three minutes into the conversation. I was like, Grace, you've got to come on the podcast. Would you be interested in coming on the podcast? And you're like, sure, of course. You haven't done a podcast before. So right. I'm glad to like be your first podcast. I'm sure there'll be tons of other podcasts that you'll be featured on in the future. But I'm glad that it's you that we're having this in person because you are you have such strong interpersonal skills. Mm. You maintain eye contact. You let people finish their thoughts. So many like really great qualities around being a good conversationalist. I'm guessing you pick that up from or you develop that as a therapist. Are there any other skills that come to mind or a skill or two that comes to mind that you've developed as a therapist that's really played a role in your personal life as well? Mm. Well, First of all, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And I'm so glad to be here. When we had our conversation a couple months ago, it really brought a lot of excitement to me. And, and to have the opportunity to share this with your listeners is very exciting. So thank you. Yes. And thank you for saying I have great interpersonal skills. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> I think it's a... Would you agree? I would agree. Okay. I would agree. I, and I, I, I think that it's something that um, has gotten honed in as being with being a therapist with the, the whole communication piece. I think learning how to deliver a message is something that I learned pretty early on when I was doing group therapy, really trying to craft, how do I tell somebody something hard and difficult? So there's a number, I mean, that, and that's the really cool thing about this field is that you're constantly being shaped. I mean, you're working with people and it really causes that inner reflection as well of oh, this person's struggling with this thing and I'm telling them to handle it a certain way. But am I walking the mm. walk and not just talking the talk, you know? And and I tell all my clients that therapists are humans too. So it's a lot easier to be, you know, in the therapy chair, so to speak, and be giving advice or giving recommendations. 
And it's a lot harder when we are, our emotions take over and we have to figure out how do I communicate in a thoughtful way in a heated conversation. So that's something that's like, okay, we're human. And how do we, (laughs) how do we work on that? That's something I would say has come with being a therapist of like really just kind of honing in on my communication skills because it wasn't communication, something that's, we usually learn from our environment, from being, from seeing it done, like other skills and then practicing it and then refining it. And a lot of us don't grow up with like great models for communication. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think it's something you really think about in terms Mm -hmm. of like a skill set that you're like working on, like programming, like I'm trying to be a better programmer. It's not like communication is just such a abstract and such a large, broad skill set that you don't really spend a lot of time really thinking about it in particular, unless like your field really calls for that, you know, so like a very subset of communication that I focus a lot on is like question asking. Mm -hmm. I ask a lot of questions. I never thought about the questions I was asking until I became a podcast. But then you really do start to see what's a good question, what's a bad question. This question's too broad or this question doesn't evoke emotion or there was no story that they could deliver after the question. Mm. It's a really interesting skill to be thinking a lot about. And like now I listen to podcasts and I listen to hosts and the the quality of their questions. I'm like, oh, that was such a good question. Or I really liked how they did so much with that. So I'm guessing similar to you and like certain subsets of you know, interpersonal communication, you're thinking about that as well, because you're sitting in the seat and you're having to like become better at this, right? <laughs> Definitely. And I think once you're, lo- it's, it's that, I, I don't, I can't remember the name of that psychological mechanism, kind of the idea of like when you buy a new car and then you see it everywhere, yeah. right? Yep. It's, I imagine it's similar where when you, like what you're saying with the questions, when you are looking at, okay, how do I hone in being a really great question asker and working on how I deliver these questions? It's like you start to kind of notice it everywhere, whereas, you know, other people may just listen to a podcast and be like, oh, this is really well done, but not really looking specifically at, oh, it's because they're asking really thoughtful questions. And that is such a skill to be able to ask thoughtful questions. Yes. (laughs) There's so much that goes into it. It's hard. It is. It's really hard. It's something that gets me really excited about podcasting, becoming better at that. I had a gentleman on, Larry Hagner. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know what episode number it is, but I can drop it in the show notes mm-hmm. if anybody's interested. But he had, have you heard of the concept generative questions? You ask a question to generate more thoughts. So his example, he's all about parenthood and he has a podcast, a huge podcast all around being a better dad. You know, most parents would walk in to their kid's room and they'd ask, you know, how was your day? Mm. And that would elicit one word responses. Good. Great. It was bad. I didn't like it. I don't know. Things like that. But the concept of generative questions, you have to have someone dive a little bit deeper to actually answer the question. So instead of how was your day, what was the best part of your day? Yes. That that's going to evoke them to think about it. What did I like? Bring up a story. Then of course he's like, then they tell me the story about, well, I scored a goal in soccer or I got this. And now he's got like runway for the next days as well. Like, well, tell me about soccer today or like what happened with that girl you're ta- that you talked to, things like that. So it's really interesting that like just a small shift of words can really lead to a better relationship. <laughs> yes, yes. And I wonder if people, as I do this, where I'm worried like, oh, if I, if I, if I use this line of questioning where I'm like, what is your, what was the best part of your day? Does it, it's so foreign almost for a lot of us that. It's like, does it sound too kitschy or too, like, does it sound too calculated Uh almost? But it really does elicit more thoughtful conversations as opposed to 
a more broad, you know, how are you? How was your I, day? I, I agree. I, I The whole kitchen concept that you're talking about there is something I think about a little bit as well, because you don't want to just, you don't meet someone for the first time and you're just like, tell me about your deepest, darkest, you know, thing that's going on in your life right now. You ask some general questions to start pegging some research. And then yeah. I think the... I think it works better if it's second or third degree connection or mm -hmm. questions like, okay, like, oh, what do you do for work? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'll say, I'm a therapist. And I'm guessing you get some like standard second question that comes from that. Like, oh, like what kind of therapy or like, what do you like about being a therapist? But if you can like just think about it from their lens just a little bit deeper, then you can ask a better thoughtful question. And then they get all, they light up and they get all excited about, you know, talking or like, oh, this person's actually interested. But it's hard. I typically don't lead with like some kind of like, crazy question like that unless I'm just shooting the shit and having fun with my friends and I'm like then I do like to like go into podcast mode and just like ask them fun things but yeah people know like, that I love about your childhood trauma <laughs> yes people know and so how was your weekend I'm always got to ask what was the best part of your weekend? yeah um, so all I my close that. friends get to know a little bit of that and it's just it helps I think with a little of that questioning I think it really taps into the emotional piece of it as well of being like oh this was my highlight this is what really stood out to me from the weekend from the day as opposed to when you say how was your weekend what I find myself doing is kind of recalling the events oh we did this on Friday we did this on Saturday we did this on Sunday and then you're kind of like okay I'm just telling you what we did versus what is there's no you're you're making meaning there yes. what, what did this mean for you I love that and then I know that's what you want to talk about. So if you yeah. get the list of all the events that you did this weekend, I don't know which of those events get you most excited outside of body language or nonverbals that you're showing. But if I just ask you what was the best part of your weekend and you tell me what the best part or the, your favorite event was, oh, well. then I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to ask about that event then. <laughs> it would really be cool to see what like relationships and just interpersonally how the world looked if if that was a skill that we all kind of worked on, the yeah. whole question asking skill, because I think it allows for more intimacy, really, really kind of get to know that person better than you would asking more general questions. No doubt. So tell me, how does a daughter of two <laughs> accountants find herself working in therapy? Because I am guessing therapy was not a career option that was discussed a lot at the dinner table. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> it was, re it's really interesting. So looking back, you know, you can kind of see the pieces falling together, but in the moment, Growing up, I, you know, I was really stuck on, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a dentist, you know, and, and to my mom's credit, she was very much like, if I said, oh, I want to be a dental hygienist, she's like, go be the dentist, you know, she's like <laughs> the ultimate feminist. She's like, That's women cool. can do it all, you know. While therapy was never explicitly discussed and I had no idea what social work was, I had no idea what, you know, the therapeutic process looked like, my parents still really instilled and kind of modeled some of the things that come up for me a lot. Some of the things that now looking back, I can say, okay, that helped kind of shape me to where I am today. So for example, my parents really value like meeting people where they're at and like accepting people for who they are and kind of digging a little bit deeper. And so one of the things that used to make me really angry as a teenager is like, I would be upset and my mom would know you're not upset because of this surface level reason. You're really upset because of this deeper reason. Mm. And I would, you know, it would piss me off because I'm like, <laughs> you don't know me. Of course. She did. She did. Yeah. <laughs> and and now I, I can see how that really kind of shaped my line of thinking when it comes to people and even my own interactions or my own reactions to things where you're like, okay, this isn't 
there's something there's something deeper here. So I had the values piece, I think, from both parents, also just some of that modeling of just showing up for people in like a loving, non-judgmental, compassionate, you know, holding that positive regard for another person. I think in our best moments, that's what that's what we do as people and as therapists. And to their credit too, they they allowed me to kind of explore different different avenues and really encouraged me to to try certain things and maybe it didn't work out, but you learn just as much about yourself from those experiences as the things that do turn out really well. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And I didn't really learn that until after the fact. I feel like you're always kind of learning that through your twenties, to be honest. Failures are just as important as successes or mm-hmm. I'm just, those are two, you know, general buckets, but just trial and error in general. Like mm. I've been on a big kick about your 20s just should be for curiosity, both mm-hmm. personal and professional curiosity. And it is okay to try something and think it's got to be everything. And then it's not everything. And then to go try something else. I don't want people to be quitting things too soon, but then at the same time, like not hold on to something that took too long. Did you go, did you go into college as wanting to be a doctor? Oh yeah. And when, when did that no longer become a thing? Oh, yes. It was. It's so funny. I kind of laugh at my, you know, 17 year old self, but she was doing the best she could. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was a pre-med. I think I was maybe like a biology major. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things like you go to school and you're going to be a doctor, or a lawyer or whatever else. Yeah. And I, I knew I liked the, the healthcare world for whatever reason. And then along the way, I think it was like taking, you know, my initial chemistry class and taking some of those those initial really sciencey classes where I was like, I, even if I could be good at this, I don't know that my heart is in it enough to really dedicate the time and energy and effort that it would take to work really, really hard to get a good grade on a chemistry exam, for example. Whereas I had friends who, you know, now present time, they are doctors or dentists or whatever the case may be. And they, they were willing to put in the time and energy with those classes because I think for them, they they had that that purpose around it. Whereas for me, I was like, this doesn't really quite feel aligned. And then there were also other moments where it's like my uncle had open heart surgery and I went to visit him at the hospital and I almost nearly fainted. <laughs> Blood's not your thing. Blood's not my thing. The yeah. tubes and the things and the machines. And it just, I. so that was a moment too where I was like, this doesn't, something doesn't quite line up, you know, or like in theory, it sounds really, really helpful or really ideal. Mm-hmm. But when you, when rubber meets the road, it doesn't, you know, like that idea of like know thyself, you know, really kind of came up in that time. Was that a quick decision or did that decision get drawn out in terms of I'm pre-med, I'm going to be a doctor and then, okay, that's not for me. Was that you just decided that and moved on or did it take a little bit of time to actually come to terms with that? Yeah. So after I, after the doctor thing, I was like, well, maybe I'll be a nurse. And so then I switched into, I can't remember what the major was called at Georgia. I want to say it was like healthcare professionals or they had some kind of all-encompassing major for healthcare professions. Then I realized, oh, I really like these psychology classes. And so then I was going to be a double major and I was going to do the healthcare world and I was going to do psychology and I was going to double major because why not? Over time, really just through taking my classes and and going into upper level psychology courses, it's like, this is really cool. This is really fun. And and I I loved my AP psychology class in high school. That always really stood out to me. And then 
kind of just going where my passion lied and my interests lied and, and honing in on that. It was like, it's easy to study for these things. It's easy to do well in this because my, my heart matches what this is working towards and everything like that. So eventually I dropped the healthcare major and just focused on psychology. And I ended up graduating a little bit early from Georgia and applied to grad school. And then you came to Austin, yeah, um, which is where we're at right now. Absolutely. Uh, went to UT. Did your master's program? Yeah, is that a okay? Yeah, it was a master's program in social work. In social work, yes. And I started as this is funny, just for I started as a double major. I still wasn't letting go of the whole healthcare thing. I just couldn't. I just I was started as a double major for public health and social work, and I should, still couldn't let go of the medical thing. My first internship was at a hospital here in town. That's where I was like, okay, this is. That was another kind of reminder of this is not where you're meant to be. This is not where, you know, there are people who are are built for this, you know, who love this environment and let them do that. Mm. You go find what you love. Mm. Yeah. And then I guess you did find what you love at your Mm -hmm. second internship. Is this where you were doing group therapy and got exposed to therapy in general? Yeah. So the second year, the first year internship is more of like a placement. So you get placed in an environment and your internship. The second year, you do more of like an interview process, more of like a formal application and interview process. And so the second year, I applied for a couple of different places and interviewed. And I ended up doing group therapy at a local mental health hospital here in town. And it was one of those things where I was like, this is kind of scary and overwhelming. And, and this is the time to learn. And figure out if if I like it, if I'm good at it, if I suck at it, if I hate it, you know, you're you're here to learn. And so I really just kind of leaned into that and I I ended up loving it. I ended up loving it and I took that and that was my first job out of grad school was running groups for another mental health hospital here in town. Hmm. Did you love it because you were good at it? Were you good at it because you loved it? Kind of that chicken and egg situation? <laughs> yeah, they kind of go hand in hand. And I I think Looking back, I it would probably be pretty cringy to look at like a baby therapist Grace and see how she you know operated and everything like that and what kind of questions she asked and and all sorts of things and I I really think that that whole intuition piece as far as really getting a good feeling for the person and seeing that people were responding well to that and seeing that you know you can make a difference and you can help people. And I had a little bit of imposter syndrome too, because I was, you know, I was an intern and I was like, what do I know? I'm, you know, 23 years old and I have never run a therapy group. And yet, despite all of that, there was still like a lot of, a lot of that positive reward that came from showing up, being with people, helping people and navigating those situations. So I really think there was, there was kind of a combination of the two. And, and I think that natural interest allowed me to be better at it because it's something that I enjoyed learning about, immersing myself in, and it just kind of carried on from there. Mm. And a whole lot's happened since 23. Are you 31, 32 now? Oh, I'm 31. <laughs> all right, all right. I thought so. It looked like you were a late birthday, so I figured it was 31. Yeah, yeah uh, in the 30s now. <laughs> so, does that scare you a little bit? What was that transition oh. from 29 to 30? 
You know, it's interesting. I actually think it was harder going from 30 to 31. Oh, why so? I don't know. Because then you're like in your 30s. <laughs> you know, Not you're like 30. Yes. I'm in my 30s. Yes, exactly. You're like you're in you're in your 30s. And what comes up for me isn't so much that I, I you know, I feel very fortunate and that I, I've I feel really, really content with the life that I built and what I've done so far in this 31 years on earth. So I don't think it was so much the aging piece as much as it's like the fragility of time and how time is this like very, very precious, precious, precious thing. And you kind of think that that quote, like youth is wasted on the young comes up for me a lot where I think about like how when I was 23, you know, 30 seemed so old, you know, and it's kind of like, I'm never, it's, I'm never going to be, you know, even though logically you're like, yes, you're going to, you're going to get there. Part of me was in denial and you just think like, oh, I'm I'm still in denial. I can now see, I'm 29, so I can now see 30 and I'm like, oh yeah, I can see myself being mid thirties. And, and honestly, lots of people have said great things about their thirties. They're like, thirties is like your twenties, but with money. And I'm like, wow, that would be fun. Uh, Yeah. But I can't put a frame of reference around 50-year-old Justin right now. Like, that seems like way out of touch. There's no way I'm getting, I don't even want to think about that right now, but that will be, in terms of the timeline and like the experience and everything, I'll be looking at myself at like 48 and be like, wow, I just like never could imagine myself being 50, but now I'm going to be 50 here in a couple of years too. It's, it always seems like you're kind of denying what is eventually going to come up. But yeah, especially through my early 20s, I could not I remember being in college and being like, 25 is so old, mm-hmm. so old. Like, you know, somebody would show up at their, at a party that was like out of college because they're dating somebody and you're just like, wow, that's like the old. And now like, I still feel pretty <laughs> youthful in 29. Like, yeah. I don't feel that much different than my 21 year old self. Honestly, just more wisdom and more clarity yeah. about what I want to be doing in my life, which honestly is really refreshing and nice. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. There's some like self-assurance I think that comes with with going through your 20s and learning, you know, falling down, getting up again, learning more about yourself through that process. Because there's no longer this just this kind of prescription of, okay, you go to, you know, grade school, you go to high school, you go to college, you're now like, okay, now how do I want to spend my time? And what do I want my days to look like? And so I think it's, it's really interesting when you can lean into that and find ways to feel feel fulfilled. And also, yeah, there's always that, oh, well, okay, I'm 31 now, but at least I'm not 35. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in my mid-30s yet. You know, it's like we kind of hold on to that. And then, yeah, when I look, when I look back, you know, if I see college-age students, I don't necessarily envy that because I, I remember it being such a confusing time and you're just trying to learn so much about yourself. It was... Yeah, it was good for what it what it was. Yeah. But I always felt like I'm living my best life right now. Too. Mm. Like I've always enjoyed where I've been at. I've never been kind of looking back. Not to say that I didn't love all of those years too. Yeah. Like I, my teenage years, I loved my teenage years. I loved my high school experience. I loved my college experience. I loved figuring out the real life too in my early to mid 20s. And I'm really excited about where I'm at now and what the future holds for me. So, yeah, I don't know. I struggle with that. Like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, of course, the only reason I would go back in time right now is to just the, you know, Mm. longevity thing and whatnot, just to like restart. But I wouldn't want to like wipe what I've what I've learned in between now and then as well. Like, I don't want to like go back to 16 and just be like transported in 16 year old Justin body. But like if I could bring 29 year old wisdom Justin back to 16, that would be cool because I also saw like almost how much time and energy I wasted on something. And then like mm-hmm. if I were to be more focused on some things where I could be, 
But then saying that out loud, also being okay with just the whole journey to where I've gotten to now as well. Like it's totally fine. I did plenty of things and should, 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 should. Yeah. I uh, can't shit on yourself all day long. So, Just you know, it is what it is. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. It makes me wonder like, you know, 15 years from now, what, what you'll think about 29 year old Justin <laughs> and like, oh, you know, well, I, have I would a love to tell him this. Yeah. I have a journaling practice now. I write usually three to four sentences in a journal every single day. And it's really fun because I finally got to a year mark. I started this two years ago. I got to a year mark and then I was like, I should read last year's entry. So I've been doing that. It's actually really grounded me and like where I was, where I've come from, what I was focusing on, mm -hmm. what I'm still struggling with too. Cause I actually just read something in my journal that I was like, Hey, I'm currently struggling with this. We should put some time and energy into that mm -hmm. and think about this a little bit more. And now reading that one year later, I'm still in that same place. Mm -hmm. so I'm like, that was just a reminder. But then there's also so many things like this podcast. I wrote two years ago about how nervous I was on a certain in a certain space or like uh, whatever. And then you just put some frame of reference of how much I've grown in this particular project over a two year span as well. So mm. I don't know. It, that's life, right? Yeah, that's I that's the beauty of life. I really think is like that that we are constantly learning more about the world, about other people, but really about ourselves. And it's kind of fun to think that there's always going to be new, you know, Ideally, there's new new challenges that don't feel so much like a threat, but more like a challenge where, you know, we can lean into that and learn more about ourselves. I think it would be pretty boring if it was like, yeah, I'm 31 and I've got everything figured out. And I'm going to do exactly what I've been doing the last week yeah. or all of the next weeks ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, so like talk a lot. Funny. Do you talk to your clients a lot about this? You know, I know you deal with a, or you have a lot of college and young adult clients as well. Is the life transition space something that frequently comes up? And if so, are they excited? Are they anxious about it? What's happening or what are the conversations typically like? Yeah, it's it's it does come up a lot, especially with the 20-somethings that I work with and the college-aged individuals. And I really, I really see and, and notice that around that time, there becomes this, this kind of tension of, okay, what do I want? What do I like and enjoy and value? And then what do, what does my family value? What is my, and what is, what is society value? And where do I fall in that? And trying to kind of reconcile, okay, this is my life and this is my journey and this is my path. And that's something that I really, really work with clients around is, is honing in on your, your path and your journey. And we all get these kind of preconceived notions or ideas of how things should be. And what, you know, we all in some ways imagine our lives turning out a certain way, unfolding a certain way. It rarely turns out the way that we think it will. Again, kind of the fun of, of life. And how can we how can we look at that and lean into that? And this idea that you are living life for you, you're not living it for your parents. So if your parents want you to be an accountant or a doctor or whatever the case may be, guess what? They're not the ones that have to wake up every day and do that job and do that work. Like, what do you want? Like at the end of the day, it's your, it's your life. And so what helps you feel really fulfilled? And also this idea of really working with people around, okay, you had this preconceived notion of I'm going to do X, Y, or Z when I graduate from college or when I, the professional world will look a certain way, kind of how they imagine themselves and reconciling when reality doesn't meet our expectations or when we have to course correct and switch gears and then, okay, well, you know, marketing didn't work for me. What will work for me? I put all my eggs in that basket 
And that's where it's it's kind of fun to say, okay, yeah, what what else gets you excited? What else are you passionate about? What else do you do you lean into? And how can we how can we tap into that a little bit more? Hmm. Are these the questions that you're asking? More or less. Okay. And in in a more therapeutically sure. packaged way, perhaps. <laughs> but that's like the general I would say that's the general theme. And and really trying to validate that. Yeah, it is a hard, it is a hard time and there is a lot to navigate. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful time mm-hmm. and it's, it's a lot of kind of pieces to, to figure out. And we don't know, you know, as you mentioned with your journaling, like what two years from now will look like. We just know what we have today and how can we take a step today that might get us a little bit closer to, you know, tomorrow looking the way that we want it to, or a year from now or two years from now, even if we can't feel that right now in this moment. Yeah. One exercise that you mentioned comes up frequently with you or something that you use is this thing called value cards. Mm. Can you explain what value cards are and how you use them with your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So value cards, yes, they it's a it's basically a stack of cards that I have and you can get them online. You can there's now a companies that will like have made them mine are just like black and white printer paper. But there are now companies that will like make them really beautiful and lovely and everything like that. So I really love the the tactile, like being able to sort these cards. And essentially, there's three categories. So there's very important to me, not important to me, and then just important to me somewhere in the middle. Helping clients, this is a really fun activity to do. People always learn something about themselves. And we can generally say, oh, yeah, I value I value health and I value relationships and I value commitment and order and honesty. We can we can kind of generally say what we value, what we find important, but really being able to to look at it and kind of sort. So the value cards, it comes with, I think, about 100 values, things like mindfulness and order and spirituality and mastery. And do you just lay all 100 out or... So what I do is I have them basically take this this stack of cards and then put it category by category. I'm just going to do it since it's easier for me to tell you. And then essentially take each card and say, okay, where do you put it? Yep. Beauty, I would say, is important to me. Creativity, important to me, right? So they're just throwing them in the three general yeah, buckets to start. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so then- Mind we, if I see a couple of them? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give some ideas here- forgiveness. And then there's actually a little explanation Mm -hmm. at the bottom of them too. So it says to be forgiving others, hope to maintain a positive and optimistic outlook, challenge to take on difficult tasks and problems. Mm -hmm. So all of these are like, I'm guessing all 100 are things that people want to embody from a sense. Do you find one stack or category seems to be short? Like is the no category, there doesn't seem to be a ton in there. And then they see these two other big categories that they're like, holy cow. And do they reshuffle then? Or how does that work? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think everyone ends up being a little bit different. Oh, and some people have a ton in the, you know, just the, the general important to me, and some have a ton in the not important to me. And so it's it's really interesting how where people kind of sort the cards and how everybody is a little bit different. And what I like to do is really just focus on the what's very important to you. What did you put in that category? And if we had to narrow it down even further, what would you say the top 10 are? Mm. So if, if you listed 20, you know, well, get gotta, rid of half of them. Got to cut it down, <laughs> got to get rid of some and then really, really honing in on, on those. And what usually comes up for people is a couple things. Uh, one thing is 
when we have the idea, sometimes there's some guilt around, well, I, I feel like autonomy, for example, should be in my very important to me's, but it's really not that important to me right now. And so sometimes there's this push-pull between, as I mentioned earlier, like that, what is society? What do we, what is society value? What is, what are our family of origins value? And then what do we value? And so that becomes kind of this tension that we end up having a really cool conversation around, around it doesn't, it, it, we don't have to assign some kind of moral meaning to the fact that you may not value autonomy just because our culture and our society is saying, go be, you know, an independent person and don't rely on other people, you know, so we get to have a really cool conversation around that. The other thing that tends to come up is usually what people will notice as they're sorting the cards, like, well, creativity, for example, is very important to me, but I'm not really engaging in any creative outlets at this time. Oh. And so they'll say, well, I like I value this. This is something that's really important to me, but I don't see it in my life right now. And that's really, really what we want to tap into, because if you have something that you really value, but it's not being reflected in your life, it's going to lead to things like depression, anxiety, and and at the very least, just the general dissatisfaction. Misalignment. Misalignment. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, I could even see it. I, I think you were actually giving me this example when we talked in April, too, mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I just flipped to one here. It's adventure, and that's mm-hmm. to have new and exciting experiences. I'm guessing that's probably like a hard one for people. Like they either that's what that, that's a top value for me or it just doesn't really resonate with people. If you have that mismatch or that misalignment in a relationship, like okay. if one partner, if you really value adventure and the mm-hmm. other partner does not whatsoever, then what happens? And I'm sure the conversation that they're having with you is about this misalignment. And maybe they didn't even realize the misalignment was because my values are this and his values are this mm-hmm. and we're really colliding there a little bit. Is there a solution in that space? Is there a give and take or is there just a parting ways type conversation that happens there? Or maybe there's just more nuance that has to actually be discussed in the middle. Yeah, it's it's it, it really I think the really cool thing about like the value card sort is that, it, again, it helps us name it. It helps us identify it and say, OK, I generally, you know, using this example with adventure. OK, I generally love to, you know, take day trips or road trips or, you know, go go camping for five days and leave my phone at home, right? And if your partner is not okay with that, it can create that tension in a, in a relationship. And when you can do something like a value card sort and say like, this is actually something that I really value. And I can actually name that because I have it in front of me as opposed to just being this thing of, oh, my partner loves to go camping for five days without taking their phone, you know, their phone with them or loves to go on long day trips. And like, why don't they want to spend more time with me? You know, I want to be at home as opposed to it being this like kind of sticking point, we can kind of see, okay, this is what they value. This is who they are. This is who, this is something that really, you really, really fills them up and might help take that kind of personal feeling out of it of like, you are doing this to me and more of like a, this is who you are. This is what makes you tick which helps soften the conversation, I would say. And then depending on the relationship and depending how on how big the value is to each person, can we create space for, for me to let you engage in your values, even if I don't value them, but giving you space to be who you are, as long as it's not, you know, in conflict with what the boundaries of our relationship and then also vice versa. Can we have a mutual understanding? And then there are certain things that you know, values can come up in all kinds of different ways, especially like 
people tend to get really heated around politics and religion. And that's that can end up being where it's like a little bit more divisive in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And and I guess I painted values as this binary. You mm-hmm. want it or you don't, but it's not. There's there is a scale in the middle there, too. And there's also so much more opportunity. If I brought this value card of adventure to Gabby, sure, she probably does not want to do the five day camping trip <laughs> with no phone. She would be like, hell no, I'm out of that. But she is down for a scavenger hunt across Austin that I put together and maybe that fills my cup. So fun. Uh, and there is just like a little bit of communication barrier there and I didn't have the word to name what I was looking for. I was just like, I want to do the camping trip. And she's like, I don't want to do the camping trip where ultimately I just wanted to create fun, new, exciting experiences with her. And maybe that could uh, go a different way. And if you're like, well, I, I really value this and I, I feel like I haven't tapped into this, this value of adventure as much and this is affecting me mentally physically psychologically and that then allows to have a different conversation around okay this is this is affecting your mental health so how can we how can we find ways that help you feed into that and because if you're if you are if you're living a life that's more aligned with your values you're therefore going to be a better partner you're going to be a better friend you're going to be a better employee and a better boss because you're feeling more grounded and centered and content as opposed to feeling like something just feels off, but I can't really put my finger on it. And also that idea that usually this happens over time. It's not like we wake up one day and we're like, I really need to be creative today. I haven't, you know, <laughs> painted in a while. You know, I haven't podcasted in a long time. It's it's more of the, that slow burn where you're all of a sudden you're like, okay, I just don't feel right. Mm having something concrete like this can be really helpful to say, okay, what, which ones are you tapping into? Which ones, are, which values are you leaning into right now? Where does that show up on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis? And which ones need some, need some work, need yeah. some attending to? Yes. <laughs> Let's take a left turn and talk about an interest of yours. Research by Dr. Stephen Porges around... Oh my God. <laughs> Is it polyvagal theory? That's yes, right? yes. Why don't My you? Goodness. Can you explain the top line principles of this theory to a layman like myself? I will do my very best. <laughs> it was hard. I watched a couple of YouTube videos on it. So a little bit of it has sunken in, but I'm like, well, I need Grace to help me out here. <laughs> you really did your research. Yes, yes. I mean, somebody told me this was something you loved to teach and talk about. So I'm like, all right, let's let's have her teach and talk about it to me. <laughs> it's been really, I've, I've really, it's, so the polyvagal theory is something we learned about in grad school at UT. And it was, I think it was like second semester, my last, my second semester, my last year. And I remember just being like, why are we learning about this like nerve? <laughs> you know, like what is the, like. Because you just the, made this decision of like, I hate science. I don't want to do yeah. this. I, I pick psychology. Exactly. And now a little bit of science has creeped into psychology here. Exactly. <laughs> and all of the, you know, all the other courses in social work school are like social justice and like person in the environment and attachment. And then it's like the vagus nerve. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a second. It's funny looking back on that and now in my professional world, really leaning into finding that balance. I I do think there's part of me that's like that appreciates and values the scientific part of therapy because I think it helps validate what people are experiencing, what people are going through. Learning more about the polyvagal theory, it was developed by Stephen Porges. And then Deb Dana is a social worker Mm -hmm. and she basically took it took polyvagal theory and kind of translated it for the clinical world. 
And so I started reading her book during COVID. She wrote this book called Polyvagal Theory and Therapy. And essentially, going back to your question, the, the top three, so there's three kind of main principles with polyvagal theory, but the idea is it's really about how our nervous system, what state is our nervous system in, and whatever state our nervous system in, is in is going to color our experience of the world, experience of ourselves. And again, it can just be really, really validating to say, okay, where, where am I in this ladder, so to speak? And so we have three states of being. One is like feeling calm, content, at ease, ideally where we spend a lot of our time. The other state is more of a fight or flight state. So when we feel anxious or, or irritable. And then the final state is more of a shutdown. So I, I call it like playing possum. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, the world is going on around me and I don't feel connected to it at all. The reason I love it is because it helps us say, okay, if my if I am in this state of anxiety, then my nervous system is automatically going to be telling me this story of there's something wrong. There's danger out there. Like you better protect yourself. And so then what our brain does is we start scanning for threats and then we might find one. And then we start to worry about that, which is where a lot of people have this experience of worrying about one thing. And then it snowballs into worrying about multiple, multiple, multiple things. It, it's it's really transformative when we can understand that this is a nervous system thing. Your, your body is working in service of survival. And so if you're noticing some kind of threat, and modern day threats look different than, you know, primal us sure. threats. And so it could be, oh, that person didn't text me back yet, or they texted me and it was really short. It wasn't in their usual tone. But we can pick up on things like, you know, change in in vocal tone, change in eye contact, change in mannerisms, and also looking at how it how it affects us in modern time. Now that we have things like our phones, where kind of learning more about ourselves that if I am talking to somebody and you know they pick up their phone, that is a that's a rupture, and our nervous system actually senses that as a threat, as a danger, hmm. and so it's going to put us in that anxiety mode. Again, it can just be really validating. And one of the really cool things I learned as I was studying this is this concept of how we are wired for connection. And so even the most introverted ones of us, we still need to be in community with other people. And this is coming up more and more, you know, in a the COVID world, COVID world, post-COVID, whatever we're calling this, yep. this, <laughs> this area. And this idea that when we are in prolonged isolation, our nervous system automatically assumes that we're in danger. Mm. And so, interesting, right? It's really interesting because we don't have anybody to kind of co-regulate with. That makes a lot of sense. And it's that <laughs> nervous system to nervous system and just kind of holding space for each other and feeling that sense of safety. You know, we were tribal people back in the day and we've strayed really far from that. And so, helping kind of understand our nervous system and, and where am I in the, in the ladder? And am I in that shutdown state? How can I kind of work my way back up? And I'm guessing this comes up a ton when you're working with clients as well. Not mm. where am I at, but where are they at, I'm guessing. Um, mm -hmm. Because if I have this right, and I listened to a podcast with Dana and she was great at like kind of breaking it yeah. down and, and sharing. And then I listened to a couple interviews with Steven too. And he was like, I could tell he's, he's a scientist yes. and a researcher <laughs> at heart. But 
you could be clouded depending on what state you're in. So, you know, going back to the text message example, if you're in that calm, peaceful state and you get the okay text back, then you might think, oh, they're just in a rush and they had to quickly text me back. But if you're mm. in a heightened state and you get the okay mm. text, you might see it differently as, oh, they're upset with me because you're Definitely. in a trigger. You're looking for something. Your nervous system is is alert in that sense. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm once again, I'm guessing you're thinking about it from the lens of your client as well of what potential state might they be in? Mm. How might they be, how might that be affecting how they're seeing this situation right now? Yes. Is that true? Yes. So much of it goes back to how can we tell our body and our, our nervous system that we're safe right now? How can we communicate that to our body? It can be through, you know, relaxing tension in our body. It can be through eye contact. It can be through all kinds of different mechanisms. And, and it's also really interesting because as you learn more about this, I think a, a lot of us can identify with that experience of walking in a room where maybe there's tension. We may have no context, but we can just feel it, yeah. you know, and that's, that's like the polyvagal, that's the vagus nerve is we're picking up on where other people's nervous systems are. And that's the other cool thing about therapy is that the goal using this modality or this framework rather is to say, okay, how can I be that calm mm. nervous system? How so you're can acting I, as the anchor. Ideally, yes. Interesting. Yes. In my most centered days. I, yeah. I feel like there's still so much I, I, I think about how much we've learned about the brain, humans, et cetera, over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about that, you know, even going back to our last conversation of like, oh, everything I've learned since 21, like I'm really excited to see what I'm going to learn and how I'm going to develop and change as a person over the next 10 years. But the research aspect too, how much we don't know yet. And I mm -hmm. think there are some ideas that our nervous systems can unconsciously talk to each other. And I think we're going to find out in 50 years, it, we are very cued in without necessarily having to be speaking to somebody and communicating, you kind of already know, you can sense it, you can feel it in, in yourself through your, your nervous system. Definitely. Is, did you learn, have you learned anything since you've been, since this, since this has been on your radar or like how to better listen to your nervous system? Mm -hmm. I, like, yeah. is there, is there methodologies or if somebody wants to take this away right now and they want to tap in and be able to understand their nervous system a little bit better? Are there certain things that we can be doing or questions we can be asking ourselves? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So one thing I, I, I really encourage people to do is to create a, a list where it's like, okay, when I'm feeling calm, content, at ease, what do I notice in my body? What do I notice about the world? Mm. You know, I, I, I feel more connected. I feel more grounded. I feel more at ease. And how does, what does that look like really internally? You know, I might feel like, okay, everything's everything's okay. Everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm here. I'm present. And what does it look like when you start to kind of shift into those other states? And so usually that sympathetic fight or flight is easy for people to identify. And, and one example is like, you're running late, right? You're running late. I'm running late for work and I can feel it in my body and I can feel it. And, and this is where it's really interesting is like that whole state determines story. So if I'm perceiving a threat and I'm in this like sympathetic fight or flight state, I'm going to start telling myself a story about maybe myself or maybe the other drivers on the road or maybe, you know, how they built Austin infrastructure <laughs> to not Preach. Think, right? <laughs> to be conducive for a growing city, right? Like, so we can really get in it. So looking at, okay, when I'm in this safe state, what does that feel like? What does that look like? What do I tell myself? When I'm in this threat state of 
fight or flight. What does that look like? You know, what are the words that I associate with that? And, and also same thing for the final state, which is that the possum shut down. That's where we feel just really disconnected from the world. We feel really almost like apathetic, like mm-hmm. what's the point? You know, like there's no like kind of hopeless and helpless. So the first thing I would recommend people do is, is really tap into like, okay, how do I know when I'm in this state? By getting really curious about it. And so I start, I now get really curious about myself where I'm like, okay, I'm shifting. I just, you know, got off I-35 and now I'm, now I'm in a calm state. I'm home. I made it, (laughs) you know, it's like, so how can I communicate that to my body and to my nervous system? And so just really getting curious about what that looks like and, and writing it out, you know, putting words, words to that. We went full circle on the conversation. I think we started with the awareness and curiosity Mm. about asking questions. It seems very similar if you just start to develop some awareness and curiosity around tapping into these three, these three systems or states and what you feel in those, everything from the physical to sweaty palms mm-hmm. to the tension that it's giving you, you know, internally as well, you could really start to identify and then knowing, okay, sweaty palms, I'm feeling tense. I must be in fight or flight mm-hmm. right now. Maybe I'm misreading this situation. Maybe he didn't cut me off because he's an asshole. He just cut me off because he's not from Austin and looking at his phone and he's got three kids yelling in the back and he's trying to get over there. Okay. I can give him some sympathy then. Yes. Yes. And then not carrying that with us, you know, not carrying that into, you know, if I'm running late for work and then my first client feels that that's not helpful. And so trying to kind of, everything starts with awareness and that the phrase I love is just notice, just notice what's going on internally. Just notice what you're feeling led towards what, what feels like aligned for you, what doesn't feel aligned for you. And that so often we're, we're quick to assign meanings or shoulds to things. And if we can just say, oh, interesting. Huh. Thank I just you. got really pissed off at that guy. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay. As opposed to like assigning a meaning to it of like, I did it again. I got really flustered. I lost my cool, you know. And so just notice. And it's a much more, I think, curious and empathic place. I love that. To live. Chris, I'm so upset that this hour just flew by. Like, it, it was such a blast. We might have to do a part two at some point in time because I, I am, like I said, still a third away through my notes. We didn't even talk about growing from a solo oh therapist to the, the group practice that you have there. And there's a lot to unpack. I would also love to ask you some questions around finding a therapist and locating a therapist as well. So maybe we can save those for a part two, but I do want to give you the opportunity if people are interested in working with you. I know you work with anybody in Texas, both remote or if you're in Austin, where can they reach out, get connected, learn a little bit more about you? Absolutely. They can go to our website, which is gracetherapyaustin.com. And they can also check us out on Instagram, which is at gracetherapyaustin. Awesome. Well, I'll put that in the show notes too, if you're out on a run right now or something and you're looking for a reference. Final question for you, Grace. I'm thinking you know this is coming since you've listened to a podcast before, but if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Oh my goodness. This is, this is something that's so important and comes up so frequently. And I feel like I would, when I look back on my college days, I'm like, I wish I knew this. Like I wish it's communication. It's how do you, how do you communicate and how do you how do you express your needs and your wants and your feelings? Why is this not just in the standard curriculum? Right? <laughs> to people around you. And it, it comes up when, you know, I have clients that are dealing with roommate issues or friendship issues. And it's, it's like, especially, I think, in that, in that age range, so much of it is 
communication and feeling like I don't really know how to communicate what I want. We tend to vacillate to either being too passive or too aggressive. Mm. And so that would be my number one thing. And, and I, I think aligned with that, it would be a, how many weeks? How many weeks do I get? 16. Okay, perfect. You get a whole semester. Great. Then the other thing I would teach is like learning and, and included with the the communication is learning more about emotions and how do I identify what I'm feeling and how do I know what I'm feeling and learning just just really kind of learning about that because that's also going to guide our communication and it's also going to guide how we interact with the world and if there's this idea of like, like Dan Siegel says name it to tame it like if I can name what I'm feeling it helps kind of lessen that a little bit and so that would be a huge thing. So I think, I think emotions go into communication. Definitely. So be a nice little package. Yeah. It almost, I feel like I'd almost want to start with emotions. So, yes. cause that would aid me in all the mm -hmm. communications versus just like, you're frustrating me. Get out of here. Yeah. Actually like name that emotion, explain the emotion, where it's coming from and you know, let, let the rest do its thing. Definitely. And it goes on and with like the polyvagal theory too, right? Cause like if I'm in that threat mode, if I'm in protection, you know, I'm feeling defensive, then I'm not going to be a very great communicator. So have maybe, to do a whole class on polyvagal, I think. Yes. Maybe have Dana come in or Stephen come in They'd and have do to. guest speak yeah. or something. A little, <laughs> little dream team. We'd That'd all awesome. hang out and talk about polyvagal theory. <laughs> well, Grace, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, giving me so much of your time, energy. Love the space that we're in right now as well. I might maybe inspire me to do some more in-person interviews because yeah. it's been, it's been fun. It's, it's nice seeing body language and getting the energy and whatnot. I mean, it just doesn't do justice over Zoom sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like the gold standard, I think, for, you know, we can get a lot. Zoom has its its place and its purpose. And I think there's, it's a co-regulation, right? There's, there's just something to be said for sharing space with somebody else. So thank you for coming and for making this wonderful podcast and interviewing me and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.